millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Unheard News, I'm Freddie Sayers. The offensive by the Ukrainian army into eastern Ukraine in recent days, recapturing a lot of territory that had previously been under Russian control, has taken people by surprise. And yet, as usual, it is hard to know exactly the truth of it. Is it propaganda or is it real? If it is real, does it make peace more likely? Or will we now see some kind of counter-offensive by the Russians? How will it affect the overall endgame? As always, it's hard to find a truly independent analyst who everyone is prepared to stand behind. Today we're doing something a bit different. We're talking to someone who is unapologetically on the realist side of the argument. That is, sympathetic to the idea that NATO is to a large degree responsible and that a settlement should be pursued instead of carrying on with the war till ultimate victory. Indeed, he's even been accused of being a Russian propagandist, a charge which, of course, he rejects. This week, he did something unusual for an analyst or commentator. He admitted he had been wrong. We don't see that very much. And that he has radically changed parts of his point of view. So we wanted to catch up with him and see what he thinks now. Clint Ehrlich joins us from Los Angeles. Hi, Clint. Thanks for having me on. So first of all, Clint, are you happy with the description I gave of you there in the introduction? I know you were formerly a research associate at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations. That's something that people use to tar you or imply that you're in some way a, a propagandist for the Russian side. How do you describe your own point of view? Well, I think that calling me a realist is, is fair. Uh, you mentioned that I assign blame to, to NATO for the conflict, uh, and that's true, but I also assign a, a great deal of blame to Russia for invading Ukraine. It's just that I see that as a foreseeable outcome uh, of international relations and the policies that uh, NATO and the United States also took. And so I think that there's plenty of blame to go around. Uh, I think it's important to note that I was a, a visiting researcher uh, at MGMO, which is the, the Russian acronym uh, for that university. So I was always there as an American, uh, sort of embedded and observing things inside Russia's foreign ministry. Uh, and uh, when I've done uh, interviews in the United States that have been rebroadcast uh, in Russia, uh, they actually cut out uh, the portions of my comments that are critical of Russia. So I've always tried to be even-handed, and many of the things that I say actually are, are quite critical of Russia. Okay, so let's dive straight into this most recent development, if we could. Um, the, the tweet that we noticed, we can actually put it up on the screen, um, you sent out saying that you were, you were surprised by the recent successes of the Ukrainian army. Um, 
You said that you predicted a Sputnik moment when Russia invaded Ukraine. I was wrong. We don't read that very much on Twitter. Ukraine is the country that is achieving a Sputnik moment. Its counteroffensive has shocked the world. So what do you mean by all of that? Russia was, was guarding that territory uh, basically with, with paramilitary forces that didn't have uh, heavy, heavy weapons. And that's sort of been used by, I would say, by Russian apologists to sort of excuse uh, what is, is very clearly a, a rather decisive defeat uh, to try to claim that, well, uh, Russia basically uh, withdrew and had evacuated that space already. But the very fact that Russia didn't have sufficient troops on the ground to defend that territory when it's so critical really shows the manpower shortages that the Russian military is facing in this conflict. And in particular, the city of Izum was a, a logistics hub uh, which provides railway access to much of the Donbass, or at least the northern portion. And so to, to lose that really undercuts Russia's entire logistical effort uh, in the north of the Donbass and calls into question its ability to achieve its already downsized aims in the war. I've been observing some of the chatter on the kind of Russian side. We've been seeing clips from state television where they have commentary programs. Uh, also, allies such as the uh, Mr. Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, who have been very critical, um, as you are sounding, towards this Russian effort. And it feels like there are cracks beginning to show on the Russian side and that critical voices that were formerly fully kind of in step with Putin's plan are getting louder. Do you think that's true? Is that fair to observe? That is that is absolutely true. What we're seeing is that previously there was frustration that what Putin had called a special military operation was not achieving its goals on the, the time frame uh, that had been promised, but we hadn't seen any large-scale withdrawal from territory that had been occupied. And it's, it's really important to understand that Russia was working to integrate these territories fully into Russia, that actually some of the, the teachers uh, in these provinces uh, that Ukraine has just retaken were sent into Russia in order to receive special training so that the Russians could have them teaching a curriculum that matched the Russian national curriculum. And so there was a, really a promise made to the people in these territories that they were going to be part of Russia forever. Uh, and to see Russia then fall back uh, and to hand those people over to the Ukrainian military from the perspective of, of Russians is really a fundamental betrayal uh, and something that calls into question the effectiveness of Russia's military leadership. So we are seeing something very significant then. I mean, it's, it's not propaganda. It's not just spin on the Ukrainian side that we should be skeptical about. In your estimation, this is a real breakthrough that should change the way we perceive Russian capability. The, the Ukrainians are engaging in a great deal of spin and, and propaganda. And so some of the, the claims that you hear about uh, essentially Russian forces being routed, uh, dropping their we weapons and trying to blend in with the civilian population, those, those don't match anything that I see uh, happening uh, on the ground. And so it's important to not overestimate this or to think that this is bringing us close to uh, an end to the war. That, that isn't happening uh, at all. But it is decisive in a psychological sense that this is probably the worst defeat uh, that Russia has, has suffered since the first Chechen war. The question has to be, before we come on to talk about what the end might look like, the question has to be, why? You know, why is the military of this supposed superpower, um, this vast country, um, appearing to fail so badly? We've had extraordinary numbers of Russian generals dying in action. Uh, we had an initial plan to encircle Kiev that 
didn't materialize and then there was a retreat they say that was all a kind of decoy plan and that's their answer to that we've had all sorts of logistical problems they don't appear to be very good what's going on there's a lot of factors that are going on one of them is the uh, attempt by the kremlin to sort of have it both ways both to defeat the ukrainian military but also to not mobilize russia on a full wartime footing. Uh, and so Russia, due to political constraints, has sort of been fighting with one hand tied behind its back because uh, President Putin doesn't want to risk having civil unrest inside the, the country uh, by uh, admitting that in order to achieve the stated aims uh, of the war, uh, that Russia might need to really fully mobilize to have conscripts. Uh, and so this, this really isn't uh, an, an equal playing field between these two powers uh, because Ukraine has fully mobilized. And that's given Ukraine a, a manpower uh, advantage that Russia has been unable to match. The, the other thing is that this really isn't a conflict between Ukraine and Russia so much as it is a, a conflict between sort of the combined resources uh, of the West uh, and Russia. So that becomes very important in, in a few domains. One of them is that Russia has been unable to destroy Ukraine's intelligence gathering capabilities, its air defense capabilities, because so many of those are being provided by NATO. And so in a, in a normal war, if Russia were just fighting Ukraine directly, it would be able to take out its radar stations and achieve uh, immediate total uh, air supremacy. But because NATO has uh, its sensors, and it is basically using sensor fusion to constantly feed the Ukrainians intelligence on Russian positions uh, and allow them to then fire uh, at those positions. Uh, Russia just has no ability basically to blind the Ukrainian military. Uh, and we've seen uh, just what an advantage that has been for the Ukrainians. So let me just go back to the first of the two reasons you gave, which was the fact that Putin has not fully mobilized his population. That's connected to this technical detail that he doesn't call it a war, he calls it a special military operation. Is it your view then that he can't actually escalate it to a full war because there wouldn't be enough political support for it within Russia? So it's not so much a choice as a it's just a, it's a fact on the ground for him. It, his hands are tied. He, he's in a bind uh, and it's, it's very difficult to know uh, which would be worse for him to fail to achieve the objectives uh, in the conflict or to actually fully declare uh, that this is a war. Uh, it's it's possible that he might try to seek a, a middle route. So we've seen some suggestions inside Russia that they could rebrand the special military operation a counterterrorism operation. And to our Western ears, that sounds very strange. But what it would mean? Well, it is sounds eerily familiar from the Iraq War era, which was also never decreed as a war by the American government. That was a counterterrorism operation, as I recall. Indeed. And but from the, the Russian perspective, what that would mean uh, is that they would have a, a freer hand uh, to attack critical infrastructure. And we actually saw that in the wake of the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, that the Russians did begin to knock out uh, electricity and, and water, uh, which they previously uh, have not done, at least not on the scale uh, that we saw. So it's possible that President Putin, instead of declaring a war, uh, might do that sort of rebranding, or he might declare a war, but then not actually engage in full-scale mass conscription. So he might declare a war so that he could say that he was doing something, but then try to chart sort of a, a path where he's not creating the circumstances on the ground inside Russia for political opposition, uh, opposition to rise up against him. I mean, it, who knows what the kind of political reality would end up being. It's very hard to speculate, but it, it seems a stretch, doesn't it, that he would be able to have full-scale conscription. There's been a lot of 
images and, and information about really very young soldiers on the Russian side who don't seem adequately trained or they were training on the job. Even in the operation so far, there have been very, very high casualty numbers. Again, the exact truth of what the number is, is is hard to establish, but we know it's high. To escalate from that point to suddenly saying that every you know young man needs to sign up, I don't know, does that seem feasible? I think that whether it's feasible will depend on the ability of the Ukrainians to press their advantage. So at this point, doing that purely over a conflict in the Donbass, um, I don't think that that's realistic. But the Ukrainians' aims aren't limited to the Donbass. They want to drive Russia and uh, the breakaway forces of the DNR and LNR uh, out of the Donbass. But then they want to set their sights ultimately on Crimea. I'm very skeptical that the Ukrainians are actually going to be able to try to mount uh, an offensive ever uh, to retake that peninsula. But if they did, I think it's very important for people to understand that within Russia, that is viewed as sovereign Russian territory the same way that Moscow or St. Petersburg would be. Uh, And so there's really no limit to what Russia would do to defend that territory, uh, including use of potentially nuclear weapons. I want to come on to that because that that is a scary possibility. But just to finish the the second of your points that you made, which is that Russia has been outmatched in this conflict, technologically, financially, in terms of manpower, on the ground. Um, And I'm just wondering, do sanctions play a part in that? Because we've had a lot of guests who've been really quite skeptical of the efficacy of these global sanctions against Russia. We noticed that the energy prices are higher than ever. You know, we're still spending billions and billions on Russian gas and all the rest of it. But is it true, do you think, that one important effect of the sanctions is that things like equipment and you know, vital resources, the quite specific things that are hard to make within Russia, are becoming hard to get hold of, and that makes it hard for the Russian war effort generally? I don't think that we've seen sanctions have that effect yet, but it's foreseeable that Russia's ability to continue resupplying itself, particularly in regards to precision munitions, could be affected by sanctions. So I'm very skeptical about broad-based sanctions that try to bring Russia to its knees economically or to try to inflict a toll on the Russian civilian population to try to get them to not support the war. Those I do not think will ever be effective, but sanctions uh, against um, the import uh, of electronics that Russia needs, semiconductors for use in its cruise missiles, for example, uh, are are things that could potentially place Russia in a bind, although I don't think that we've yet seen those munition shortages have a a real effect on the battlefield. Right. So um, let's just engage the opposite argument for a moment, if we could, which is the the normie argument, if you will, the the mainstream position, which we get wall-to-wall in Western media, which is this has now become a battle of good and evil. Russia invaded a sovereign country and therefore it must be resisted at all costs to the end and it must be repelled right back to its starting point. This past weekend, with these huge gains made by the Ukrainian army, feed that narrative, don't they? And and it looks good if that's been your position. Suddenly this week you're feeling a little bit more confident. Do you think we should acknowledge that? I see it a little bit differently. I actually think that the way that the war has unfolded has undercut that argument to some extent, because the the mainstream normie position really has been to portray Putin as a new Hitler and to say that it's of critical import that we stop him 
uh, in Ukraine, because otherwise, Lord knows where he might invade next, uh, and that there's there's no limit to his ambitions. And that instead, what we've seen is that the Russian military has struggled just to take this you know small portion uh, of Ukrainian territory, and it's really been humbled in this conflict. And so, I would say that the the risk of Russia as a revanchist expansionist power. Um, realistically has diminished in the wake of this conflict, not increased. Although you were the person who just moments ago mentioned nuclear weapons, and obviously that needs to be part of this discussion. So a lot of people will think, fine, they, we, the West you know, inflicts local military humiliations on the Russians with tank war. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ...and with um, some air power. But ultimately, if they're really on their back foot, feeling humiliated, feeling anxious, and if Vladimir Putin feels cornered, is there an argument to say that actually increases the chance of some kind of nuclear event? It does increase the risk of a nuclear event, but only if we support the Ukrainians in mounting an offensive towards Crimea. And I, I really can't emphasize enough how different the status of Crimea is to the rest of the territory that Russia has occupied uh, in, in Ukraine. Uh, Crimea, even though uh, under international law uh, and in the, the views of, of many Americans, that isn't part of Russia, it is 100% perceived that way by the Russians. And Russia has a, a nuclear doctrine where previously they had a, a complete no first use pledge saying, we will not use nuclear weapons unless we are attacked with nuclear weapons. They've now modified that pledge. And they've said that they will use nuclear weapons against a conventional attack if it threatens the integrity of the Russian state. Uh, and President Putin has, has signaled that he believes that an attack on Crimea would threaten the integrity of the state. 
uh, and that nuclear weapons would be employed. I mean, I think the phrase is existential threat, isn't it? I, we, we spoke to one of the Russian ambassadors uh, to the United Nations who used that phrase. And as you say, if, if their interpretation of the situation is that there's an existential threat to Russia, they would feel justified in using nuclear weapons. So that really becomes a matter of interpretation. I don't know whether it stops at the Crimea or anywhere else. Should we conclude from what you've just said that you think Ukraine could retake the whole Donbass, push all of the Russian forces back to the Russian border, excluding Crimea, and the Russians would tolerate that? I don't believe that the Russians would tolerate that, and I don't think that Ukraine is going to do that anytime soon. The question is the scale at which Russia is really willing to, to fight this war. And what I alluded to before is that President Putin is really caught between a rock and a, and a hard place. Um, it, it would be politically unacceptable uh, for him, for Russia to be pushed out of uh, the Donbass. But as you mentioned, the idea of mass conscription to try to stop that outcome also seems sort of unbelievable. Uh, and so it's, it's really difficult to know exactly what course of action he would chart. Uh, although I think that at, at, at best for Ukraine to achieve that, um, they would need to continue mounting this offensive all the way into 2023. Which at the moment seems entirely feasible, doesn't it? I mean, your tweet just there that we looked at showed that you were surprised that suddenly a whole chunk of Russian territory was retaken by the Ukrainians. The government is all over the airwaves today saying that the counteroffensives will continue. This is just the beginning, I think one Ukrainian official said. Maybe we'll get another tweet from you in three days as the entire Luhansk province is retaken by Ukraine. And then maybe it proceeds to Donetsk and suddenly we're talking again in three weeks' time and the, the Russian offensive looks completely scattered. It, is that a wild, fictional work of imagination or is there any chance that what I've just described could happen? I think the chances of that happening are very low because the success of this initial Ukrainian counteroffensive um, in the the Kharkov region sort of reflects a, a power vacuum where Russia had not deployed enough forces there. And as the Ukrainians continue to press forward, uh, they would encounter a, a new line of engagement uh, and things are, are likely to stabilize, although uh, certainly panic is contagious in, in any military. And so the, the worse things go for the Russians, the harder it is to continue to fight. Do you think there'll be a counter counteroffensive now, something to put the Russians back on the front foot? I do, uh, except it's it's always harder to advance into territory against a, a dug-in enemy, and so any attempt to portray this as some sort of master plan by uh, the Russians to spring a trap for the Ukrainians is, I think, pure cope, uh, and that the Ukrainians for the moment have seized the initiative, and that Russia is going to struggle to regain it. We have to speculate, Clint, because we're talking about the future and there's a lot of different factors at play. If this dynamic does continue, if this surge of Ukrainian strength backed by so many Western powers continues to make advances and the Russian effort looks weak, how does that end? At, at what point will that reach a resolution? It, it really depends on uh, at which point the Ukrainians are willing to negotiate and the point uh, at which uh, President Putin uh, is willing to stop escalating the war. And I don't really see a, a resolution uh, anytime in, in the future. And the difficulty of, of making that prediction is that uh, both sides view this as, as uh, an existential issue. And when I say both sides, I mean that 
uh, at the political level, that President Zelensky uh, is unable to pursue a, a resolution uh, that involves giving up any significant Ukrainian territory to Russia, uh, and President Putin believes that the uh, integrity of his own government uh, and his hold on power uh, would be compromised uh, if he were to give up the Donbass. And so uh, for there to be uh, a resolution that Russia could accept, uh, there would need to at least be some stabilization uh, and, and long-term occupation uh, of the Donbass. Uh, and that's something that Zelensky is unwilling to give. And so that's why uh, it's, it's hard to project uh, an end to the war. And instead, the foreseeable outcome just seems to be more uh, grinding, crushing violence. What about the concept of negotiating from a position of strength? That now or now somewhere near these kind of moments when Ukraine is looking successful would be the time to offer some sort of deal to the Russians. Do you think that is, I mean, I will, if I suggest that, I'll be accused of being a kind of sellout or a Putin crony or something. But do you think that beneath the rhetoric, there are probably people within the Ukrainian administration who are planning for some kind of settlement, whether some of those eastern provinces would be UN-controlled special zones or whatever the kind of fudge might be to, to allow all sides to step back. Do you think that's now a feasible course? If I were President Zelensky, I would consider doing that. I don't think that that option is truly on the table for him because of the nationalist forces within his country. And so um, it, it may be fair to dispute whether uh, those are you know, neo-Nazis the way that the Russians portray them, uh, but the reality is that they are uh, hardline nationalists who are unwilling to give up their territory to Russia, and they would view any attempt by uh, their government's leadership to do so as a betrayal uh, of Ukraine. Uh, and so if, if President Zelensky's government were to attempt to do that, then it could potentially be facing uh, military opposition inside its own country, uh, and that really limits the, the freedom of action that Zelensky has to try to cut a deal, uh, even when he has the advantage and it might be a good time to do so. So people like Emmanuel Macron, for example, who have been looking to make special lines of communication open with Russia, you don't think there might be a kind of deal over the head of Zelensky in some way, that there could be some kind of agreement made between Europe that is struggling with these gas issues and a, with a difficult winter ahead and Russia that is now evidently struggling militarily, you know, you've got two blocks that are kind of quite keen for this to end, uh, or should be. Do you think, even if President Zelensky and his administration remain ostensibly fully committed, there could be some kind of deal above his head? Do you think that is the way this might play out? I think the, the only person that could make a deal above Zelensky's head would be President Biden, uh, and that the United States really doesn't care enough about the economic toll uh, on, on Europe uh, in order to do that. That instead, the United States smells blood in the water, and that it views this as sort of a, a geostrategic uh, opportunity to continue degrading Russia's forces. And so I think that instead, we're likely to see the United States push Ukraine to continue pressing the advantage uh, in order to degrade Russian forces further. You mentioned the nuclear option, and that's something we've talked about with other guests. What's your analysis of that? How likely do you think that is? Is there some sort of halfway house that, I mean, it's you know preposterous to talk about halfway houses when you're talking about a nuclear weapon, but is there anything that you think the Russians might do 
to kind of indicate their willingness to use a nuclear weapon and scare people without actually landing one on Ukrainian soil? Well, the, the Russians have been trying to do that from the beginning of the conflict. If you remember that very early on, they raised their level of nuclear readiness uh, and President Putin made a, a veiled threat that nuclear weapons could be used against anyone who attempted to try to intervene in, in Ukraine. And at a certain point, if you engage in enough nuclear saber rattling, people stop believing that the threat is credible. And I think that we've reached that point with Russia. And so my fear is actually that the amount of nuclear saber rattling that Russia engaged in uh, in, the, in the early days of the conflict uh, has sort of deadened people to the very real threat that if Ukraine were eventually to try to retake Crimea, that that wouldn't be uh, an idle threat. Uh, and that if necessary, I believe President Putin would use nuclear weapons to defend that territory. And how would that happen? Well, I, I think it's unlikely to happen. And it's very important to make that clear. I'm not projecting that there's going to be a nuclear war. But when we talk about uh, something of that magnitude, even a low probability event is, is worth considering. And so the way that that would happen uh, would be that uh, if Ukraine uh, were ultimately able to use the Western military aid to mount uh, an offensive uh, against the Crimean Peninsula uh, and Russia were unable to defend Crimea using conventional weapons, I believe that Russia would then make a direct threat um, in, instead of a sort of veiled one that would spell out uh, its willingness to use a, a nuclear weapon uh, against Ukraine. Uh, and that then ultimately, uh, if that threat uh, were not heeded, uh, that we would see the use of one or more tactical nuclear weapons on Ukrainian territory. And what does that mean, a tactical nuclear weapon? It would mean that it's a, a, a smaller yield uh, in, in an attempt to minimize the amount of, of radioactive fallout that would reach Russian territory. If that did happen, what happens next? I mean, well, clearly, the, the whole doctrine of nuclear conduct is that you bomb us, we bomb you. If no matter how small or how tactical that was, if there was a nuclear detonation, what happens? There's a telephone call between Prime Minister Truss and President Joe Biden and other NATO leaders, and they say, hey, should we let off a nuclear weapon above Russian territory or in Siberia? Or what, what happens then? I hope that we'll never find out what happens then. And part of what's so scary about the scenario is the, the lack of clarity about what would happen because uh, clarity over nuclear response is what stops nuclear weapons from being used. And right now, we don't know what kind of uh, nuclear guarantees the United States uh, and NATO uh, really have offered uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and so that, that lack of clarity is what makes the scenario plausible, and it's also what makes the, the risk of escalation so scary. Let me end by asking you about the situation inside Russia. Obviously, you're in Los Angeles at the moment. You're not in Russia, but you have spent time there. You're familiar um, with their way of thinking. What should we think is going on in that regime, in, in that administration? It's, it's so hard to get any visibility. Do you think, as you often read on Western social media accounts, Western newspapers, do you think Vladimir Putin is vulnerable? I think that he's more vulnerable than he's ever been before. And so it would be a mistake to think that he's on the precipice of, of losing power. He still maintains widespread support uh, within Russia. But this is the, the first time in the, the history of his government where I think doubt is starting to creep into the minds of the Russian people uh, about his judgment uh, and about the stability of the country. So what, how would that happen then? Would that be a kind of equivalent to the, the Boris Johnson exit that you get enough senior lieutenants sort of lining up in his office and saying, hey, time's up. 
you got to go. Would he listen to that? Probably not. There would have to be something really quite forceful to, to get him out of office. What mechanism might that be? Uh, I don't believe that he would be forced out of office uh, before uh, an election. Uh, it's just more likely that Russia's constitution would not be uh, amended uh, in order to provide him additional time in office, and he would step down in an orderly transition of power uh, and endorse a successor. What, what chances do you put on this in some way being the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin? I think that it's the beginning of the end of his political career, uh, but I don't think that we're going to see him ousted in any sort of uh, dramatic fashion. Uh, fashion. Uh, I think that instead this will just be seen as something that harmed his legacy uh, and that made it uh, impossible for him to continue uh, to stay in power indefinitely in Russia. And if that happens, as you've just said, will you then feel that your stance earlier in this war was misguided because this great Western defense, the, as you saw it, over-the-top sanctions, saber-rattling, rhetoric, talk of good versus evil and all of that, ultimately successfully would have led to the end of Vladimir Putin and therefore it worked out. Would we see another apology from you if that happened? No, I think that we would see a, a more nationalist leader rise to power uh, in Russia and I believe that in hindsight that Putin would look like a, a moderate compared to what's to come. Okay, well, that's even more chilling uh, potentials. And so I'm not sure what kind of hopeful note we can find, probably none. But Clint Ehrlich, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. That was Clint Ehrlich, a Russia analyst who is normally accused of being too pro-Russian. He goes on Tucker Carlson on Fox News. He spent time at an institution funded by the Russian state. He takes a much more critical position of NATO than most Western outlets. And yet, there he was being overtly critical of the Russian war effort, surprised by its failures and describing increasingly critical voices within the Russian sphere against the leadership of Vladimir Putin. He even said he thought this would be the beginning of the end of Putin's political career. We will continue to investigate this war We'll be trying to stay skeptical, but always ready to consider new perspectives. Hopefully, through all the spin and through all the angles, we'll get some sense of what is actually going on. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.